Well, this morning we've got a good friend of mine here. This is Seth York. Uh, I first learned about Seth when I took his dad for preaching class at Southern Seminary, Southern Seminary Herschel York. Uh, and met Seth recently after when I took my first youth group to Crossings, and he's still working at Crossings. If you've ever been to Crossings Camp, you'll remember there's all these guys walking around in blue polos, and they're the guys that help fix all your problems or anything that you need. They're the guys that you go to, and Seth is one of those blue polos. How long have you been serving at Crossings? Uh, 11 years. 11 years. He's property manager there, uh, and I always love getting to see him. And so ask him to come preach for us this morning. I hope you uh, enjoy him. Man, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's always a joy uh, to get uh, get to come to Ohio. It was, you know, yeah, it is. Yeah, I heard it. Is it? It is. If my, my wife and I get a chance to get away, Cincinnati is our place that we've kind of uh, gravitate towards. So I know this isn't Cincinnati, but, you know, I'm sure when you're telling somebody where you're from, that's probably what you use as a point of reference. Uh, I live in a town of Baghdad. And all my kids are from Baghdad, and we have no point of reference. We just, I used to say, I live in the Baghdad with no H, but it turned out most people didn't know how to spell Baghdad, that it had an H in it. I would say I quit using that joke, but I guess I just used that joke. So, uh, anyway, yeah, we uh, do bring greetings from crossings. It's an exciting time. We, we have about 600 college students on uh, at Cedarmore's property right now um, a, a retreat a couple of big retreats college retreats one of which from this area um, and so a lot of people ask what we do in the off season I've been there 11 years I haven't had an off season yet um, but it's good man Lord's been kind we we already have over 20,000 kids and students registered right now to come to camp next year uh, and that is just a great privilege that we have and man, the Lord's been so kind. And, and really, you think about it, it was just a couple years ago, I didn't have a job. We furloughed everybody at Crossings. And, uh, and now, to be in the place where we are, man, the Lord's been very gracious to us. So we're grateful. We're grateful for you guys. Appreciate uh, that you, you trust us with your students. And uh, man, we want to be good stewards of that. We've got a building, new building that's going up right now. We plan to start another building after next summer. Uh, so anyway, man, much, much to be thankful for. And uh, man, I'm grateful for y'all's uh, ministry staff. Uh, of course, Brent, I met, met him when he was at a different place, and we've stayed in touch since then. And then I've just come to have great affection for Ryan. I get to see literally hundreds of youth pastors come through crossings, and uh, he is one of the great ones. So you guys really have a gem in him. Uh, but then he married way up. Only way to go for Ryan. Uh, <laughs> you don't want somebody on par with him. Uh, no, but no, he's great. But Darcy, of course, uh, she's just been a, I'm sure, God sent her all his ministry. We, we got, had the privilege of having her work at Crossings for a little while, and she, she was one of the great ones as well. So anyway, I feel like uh, you guys are family uh, just because of my connection to these dear folks. So uh, I'm grateful. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Daniel chapter 1, one of my favorite books in the entire Bible, at least the first half of it. <laughs> when it gets into the apocalyptic literature, it kind of loses me, but uh, the narrative story of Daniel is just a great, of great encouragement, uh, and man, I love to, to go there uh, and look for 
a well from which to draw for my own resilience and faithfulness in the word. But in Daniel chapter 1, I don't think there is a better analog in all of scripture for where we find ourselves in culture today. And uh, a believer has to make sense of this world around them. So let's read together. We're going to read the entire chapter, chapter here, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Four youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drink, drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved, remember that phrase, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were worse in condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, who the, of the chief of the eunuchs was over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants accordingly to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded them that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Uh, about five years ago, I reached something that I would call a um, crisis of culture. Part of my job, my responsibility is I lead a team of about 50 college students, 50 to 60 college students, hopefully this year 75, uh, to do camp, to do camp ministry. And, uh, you know, to quote the great Matthew McConaughey, uh, was as he was talking about high schoolers in a movie that he was in, he said, I get older and they stay the same age. And that's how I feel as I was, as I was leading these college students. Every year I get older and they stay the same age. And I reached this point at which I felt like the distance between me and them was widening. And the uh, cultures that we were both a part of were widening. Maybe you felt this in some degree or fashion. And it led me to uh, dive deep into study of culture and what this means and what are the implications and why are they the way they are? Why do they think the way they do? Why am I the way I am? Who's right? Right? Should I be more like them? Should they be more like me? And the answer is yes. Right? But as I was looking into these things, I ran across a book which I commend uh, every chance I get. It's called Faith for Exiles. And Faith for Exiles, they presented this concept that basically they, what they say is that screens disciple, right? Screens disciple, and every time that we are interacting with something, it's making a claim about who God is and who I am and how life works. And each time that this happens, right, we are being discipled. And they, they coined this phrase, digital Babylon. And I think digital Babylon is absolutely true, but really, in the past few years since I've read that book, I don't think it's just in the digital spaces anymore. I think we've, as we look around, as we engage in the culture that we're a part of, we are very much a part of a very real Babylon. It is not just in the deep, dark recesses of the Internet anymore. It is at recess. It isn't buried in new apps that only the earliest adopting teens have access to. It is in everything. It's in our legislation. It's in the public square. And unlike Daniel and his three friends, we aren't being violently ripped from our homes and taken to the court of the king. To the contrary, this cult culture seeps into our homes like a noxious gas. It comes in unannounced, but it imposes itself on us. And we find ourselves in a very real situation of being in our very own Babylon. We see that talked about throughout all of Scripture, right? And here we find ourselves. And for us, I think it's absolutely important as we look around to identify the reality that we are in a type of Babylon. Because in the past, we have been lulled into this sense of False security, maybe, that as we looked around, it felt more like Jerusalem. It felt more like a place that was friendly to our customs, our way of thinking, our way of acting and living. And then at some point, the shift begins to happen. And in that transition of time, we look around and we go, well, what in the world is happening? And we begin to, to see maybe this isn't what we thought it was. 
here we are, we find ourselves in a very unfamiliar place. But, again, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had the, if I dare say, privilege of at least it was clear to them that this is what has happened. Because I think for many of us in, in our homes, we have just been lulled into this idea that maybe we've been wrong all along. Or maybe that some of this does need to change or we need to adjust or compensate for what Scripture has said. So, how do we live as faithful exiles in a world that is not friendly to how the Christian thinks and believes? How do we make resilient disciples in this, wor in this world? Well, I believe there is a way, but as when there, whenever there is a way, there is a ditch on either side, right? And I, I want to present to you two ditches I think we could fall into as believers, and then finally the way that I would commend to you. The first ditch is that of withdrawal. I tell you, this is very tempting to me. My kids, as they go to sleep almost every night, they listen to podcasts. And I went by their room one night, they were listening to a podcast, and I heard just some, you know, they were talking, it was like this meditation, they were encouraging this meditation for kids in this mindfulness, which was very opposed to everything that we would teach. Now, obviously, I think the Bible teaches us to meditate, meditate on God's word, but it doesn't say to empty our minds, it says to fill our minds with the right things. But as I heard this, and I felt like, oh man, this seems so just insidious that they would be trying to teach this to my kids. I, I, it makes me want to go into a monastic lifestyle, that we would just move into a monastery somewhere and just avoid all these things and not have to fool with it. But that was not what Daniel and his friends did. No, they did not withdraw. That's one of the great storylines of the book of Daniel is how God used their involvement in these things, in this culture, even in that government, to bless even the Gentiles. That, that is a great thing. Now, I do not mean to be critical of the church. That you, don't, you can just go to Twitter if you want to see people just criticize the church. But I think a way that maybe we need to self-correct is how we talk to students about ministry. Right? We get our students in youth ministry, and we get the best and the brightest, and then we try and convince them because they're doing the right things that they are a different level of Christian and that they ought to commit themselves to full-time vocational ministry. And what we're doing, we take them that need, those that need to be in the public square and in the workforce, and we withdraw them from the world. Now, he alluded to the fact my dad teaches at Southern Seminary. I've been a part of seminary culture for couple decades now and what I will tell you is that most of those that enter into seminary do not stay in ministry most of the people that you would sit in class with on your first day of ministry are will not remain in the in the ministry for more than 15 years They'll fizzle out because so much of this pressure has been put on them because just because you do the right things does not mean that you're some other level of Christian. We're taking, we're taking Christianity, we're pulling it out of the workforce and into this other level of thing. We need to be taking our students and convincing them you're doing the right stuff, 
you need to take that and go be an engineer. You're doing the right stuff. You need to go be a doctor. You need to go learn a trade, be a Christian, and work on HVAC. Get guys, train them up in learning some trade and teach them what it is to be a faithful follower of Christ. We do not need to withdraw from society. We need to invest in it from a biblical standpoint. See, Daniel and his friends, they learned the difference between participation in and hope in, right? I can participate in an election, but I don't have my greatest hope in its outcome. I participate in learning leadership principles. This is one that, that stands out to me. I can learn from a secular book, but I don't have my greatest hope in its processes or procedures. I hope in my understanding of scripture, and this shapes how I understand the world. And I think you see this in Daniel's life because what he chooses to abstain from, right? He says, I'm asking that I don't, that you don't require me to eat this food and drink this wine. And I don't think you can make the case that they would be forbidden by Mosaic law to consume all of those things, right? That's, I always grew up thinking that, but that there would not be laws forbidding them from consuming some of these items. But what Daniel and his friends were doing is they were saying, I will have a three times a day reminder that I am not ultimately fed by these people. I rely on God. And God saw fit to bless Daniel and his friends because the danger of withdrawal is self-righteousness. When we become known by the things that we abstain from, we're self-righteous. We'll have more in common with a Pharisee than we do with Christ. When we begin to identify ourselves by our own activity, rather than the activity of Jesus Christ, we've left salvation by grace alone and entered into a secret Pharisaism that seeks to earn our salvation. Maybe we withdraw from one thing or another, and rightly we should. There are things we should not engage with, but it will never, it should never be about what we've left. It should always be about what we turn to. So if you have withdrawal, on this side is a ditch. On the opposite side is assimilation. You just go right into the culture as it is. Outside, here's a question for you. Outside of what you do for a few hours on Sunday morning, is there any noticeable difference between you and a good moral person who knows nothing of a risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Outside of what you do for a few hours, what's the difference between you and just a good moral person I have um, some family some family members that are probably uh, more moral than some of my other that claim to be regenerate right they, they are more generous with their time and money but what is the distinguishing matter for us the danger is that many of us have been assimilated you know as I've been at crossings for so many years now I have I am friends on social media with uh, many many former staff and one of the great joys that I get to experience is seeing people like Darcy that has come through our ministry and now serving faithfully doing incredible things 
And oh man, it fills my heart with such joy and gratitude to have some small part in these folks' lives. But the opposite is true as well. There have been many that have come through the ministry of crossings that now have completely assimilated into the culture, that have nothing about them that reflect what they once claimed. They worked hard. They gave of themselves for an, in a summer, an incredible summer, but then they are assimilated. It's easy to identify in other people. I appreciated what we read together in the time of giving. How do we spend our most important resources? How do we spend our time, our money, our relationships? You know, what the world is saying to our students and to us is that you put the big stuff in first. And what they mean by big stuff is your work, your me time, your sports, whatever it is. And in the, the few empty spaces that you have left, you sprinkle in a little Jesus, ask him to bless all the stuff, and life will be great for you. We need, as we help our students to think about what they want to do with their lives, where they want to go, where they want to live, you've got to start with Christ. And what he would call you to do and what he would call you to be. You know, so many of this, the college students that I interact with, you know, when I'm trying to convince somebody to come and serve for a summer at Crossings, to give up a summer, one of the biggest uh, problems that stands in the way of us getting the staff that we need is parents that are not on board. They would rather give to uh, have their, their kid, student, do some internship, than to make uh, an internal, eternal investment uh, in something like crossings. Now, it's not always a matter of right and wrong. Sometimes you need to do that internship, but a lot of times our college staff that we interact with, their greatest fear in telling somebody that if they're going to spend their summer serving is that I have to figure out how I could convince mom and dad of the usefulness of me spending a summer serving. That's, that's an indictment. Because the danger of assimilation is worthlessness. If we're called to be salt and light, but our salt is without impact or taste, what does scripture say? It's salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use for either the soil or the manure pile. Manure pile. It's thrown away. Right? Our salt without saltiness is worthless. So the final option I commend to you, the option that Daniel took was resolve. If you don't want, if you don't want assimilation, right, you don't want withdrawal, then we resolve. What did, what did scripture say? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. This is what scripture says in the New Testament, being in and not of. How do we do such a thing? How do we have the resolve? But frankly, it's, you know, we need to work on these spiritual muscles that in a time like this, that we would respond in the right way. You know, the IMB, the International Mission Board, does incredible training for their missionaries. And the phrase that I heard from one of their guys that does his training was, your rehearsed response will be your first response. That's great advice for life. 
we've got to be developing these spiritual muscles so then in time in a time where we are called to respond in a specific way we would have the resolve to do this so how do we do this here's i'll give you five quick steps to produce these cultivate these muscles that we can live faithful lives as exiles first one experience intimacy with jesus experience intimacy with jesus we've done a great job in our churches of teaching people about Jesus, right? Uh, it's literally called Sunday school. And we've, we've approached teaching people about Jesus like we have teaching the school system. You come in, you memorize these facts, you go home, uh, and you hope something happens. But Scripture is so much more than that. It is God's living word. And we need to cultivate intimacy with Jesus. So what we need to reframe worship not as an event, from being an event to being a lifestyle. We navigate by the way of Jesus. When you or your kids, students, in your realm of influence, when they have a decision to be made, do they navigate by way of Jesus? Do we see him and have intimacy with him? Second one, we develop muscles of cultural discernment we've got to learn how to navigate these these items i think a lot of times when people are tempted to withdraw and they do withdraw from from culture it's because they haven't developed the muscles of cultural discernment that they fear someone asking them what they think about these matters or what they ought to do in this way we haven't haven't really thought deeply we need to be our churches need to be learning communities our students ought to come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and know that we are not afraid of whatever question that they might have or ask. Right? A lot of times we've, we have taken, uh, we villainized Doubting Thomas. Right? And then that, if you think that doesn't translate to our students, right? They think they're afraid of what we might ask. And this is a blank that they fill in because they don't have an answer to these things. I'm here to tell you there is nothing that could be asked that cannot be answered and understood rightly through the word of God. Now some of it will take more work than other things. Some of it will take more effort, but we've got to be doing the work. Some questions to ask yourself. Do I know how to reflect and respond to culture? Do I understand my identity apart from culture? Am I driven by fear of the culture or the world? Now, do I see how Jesus enters into culture to meet people? Do I understand my role in representing Jesus in my context? Number three, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. As I come up here, I am very encouraged by this church, I look out here and I see a wonderful, beautiful, intergenerational church. You know, man, you guys have got it all. Uh, it was a delight to hear the kids singing next to me. I see people, we shall say, on the opposite end of that spectrum. And, uh, but that's a beautiful thing, right? I, I'll spare you the details of my entire testimony, but there was a time when I was far from God and the people that impacted me most when I wouldn't listen to my parents, are those, were those older folks that had invested in my life and came to me and said, what are you doing? 
And it was this weight of this massive group of evidence of all these people that had invested in me. It wasn't my peers. It was the people older than me that had been investing in me. It was Rick Fowl and Mark Flynn, who were my Sunday school teachers. And I'll tell you something. I had probably the best youth pastor that ever existed. His name was a guy named, his name was Jimmy Scroggins. He's an incredible pastor. He came up with three circles. He was an incredible youth pastor. He's over a massive church and multi-site deal now. Incredible guy. He was my youth pastor. None better than him. But the guys that impacted me were my Sunday school teachers who were just regular old Joes, Mark Flynn and Rick Fowl. And our churches ought to be that because you need them and they need you in both directions. You older ladies, you need to have these younger ladies come into your home and you need to teach them how to keep a home. One of the most shocking things that uh, we've experienced that since being at Crossing is just these college girls that come in and they, they ask my wife, uh, what, what are like the daily tasks that you have to do around the house? You know, just teaching this, being in proximity to these people, guys, Teaching somebody how to mow the grass, work on a car, fix something in your home, at least who to talk to for these matters. We need each other in both directions. Number four, train for vocational discipleship. This I alluded to before. How do we see our workplace as our mission place? We spend a lot of time and energy separating the secular and the sacred. But there is no separation. There is no separation. We need to train for vocational discipleship, that you at your workplace are on mission. It does two things. It relieves pressure, and it adds purpose. How can you go into a job that you're really frustrated with? Because you go there on purpose. You're on mission for Christ. And finally, number five, you engage in a countercultural mission. Engaging in countercultural mission means living as a faithful follower by trusting God's power and living differently than cultural norms. This ought to be a great checklist for our churches, for our ministries. We emphasize intimacy with Jesus. We have muscles of cultural discernment. We form meaningful intergenerational relationships. We train for vocational discipleship. And then we see ourselves every day on a countercultural mission. Because we don't live in Jerusalem. We live in Babylon. And we engage appropriately. Not like the Pharisees would say, Thank thee, O God, that you have not made me like these people. But to say, Hey, they're captives. They've fallen prey to the schemes of the devil. This isn't our home. But we want to take people with us where we're going. But as I close, the great temptation of reading the book of Daniel is for us to say, if I do these things and I stay faithful, then God will be obliged to do this for us. Right? This is a great story, the book of Daniel. But there is no promise that if you respond the right way, that God will do for you what he did for Daniel and have you end up as prime minister. Right? You know, frankly, that's probably not going to happen. You are likely, as, as the culture progresses, some of you will likely lose your jobs, which will result in maybe you losing your home. 
and losing family members, right? We look to, we go to the New Testament, we look to Hebrews 11, the great hall of fame of faith. Hebrews 11, how does it begin? With two people, Abel and Enoch, right? They're both commended for their faith. What happened to Abel? He was murdered, right? Enoch, commended for his faith, God said, I'm going to take him so he doesn't even taste death. And here's how the chapter ends. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. We, we know the character involved there. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign ar armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And it changes. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were sto stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us. And that better thing for us is Jesus. The hero of the story of Daniel is not Daniel. It's Jesus. And it was his resolve and commitment to Christ that held him. We have work to do, right? We have things that we ought to employ, but our decisions to be ethical and holy are not based on the fact that things will turn out well for us. It has to be about him. He is not a tool for us to get what we want. Quite the opposite is true. We are a tool to be used for his glory and our good God uses the outcome to display his greatness not ours that is the point of the story of Daniel and we have an incredible task in front of us as the church and there's a few ways to respond here today maybe you're going I have been tempted to totally withdraw from the culture. I'm, I don't want to have to think about it. I don't want to engage with it. Some of you have maybe fallen prey to a lot of the schemes of the devil, and you've been totally assimilated into the culture. But you say, there's no distinguishable difference between me and a good moral person outside of me being here today. I pray that we would be resolved to do what we can, that we would rehearse our response to what Satan would tempt us to do or what the culture would have us to do, but ultimately to follow Christ as we seek to be faithful exiles in the world in which we live. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word, thankful for how you give us great examples like Daniel. We look to him and we do, we do pray for the resolve of Daniel. But we acknowledge that it will only be through your spirit 
that we have the ability to want these things and to do these things that you have called us to do. So I pray that we would be found faithful in the midst of a culture that is at war with our way of thinking and believing and antithetical to you, that we would seek to be ministering to others, taking people with us, giving people a new home, ultimately in heaven. May we do so for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray.